0: Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science.
1: How are you doing, Will? Hey, Gordon. Doing all right. How about you, sir? I'm doing well. Great. Good to be here with you. It's good to be here. Yeah. And, you know, it's we're in March, <laughs> We're in March We're in March, and that's kind of a big deal, especially the northern tier. you to seeing a lot more daylight. we uh, I know
0: it's nice to go home when it's not dark, and yeah,
1: that. and creatures are starting to be on the move, yeah, some of them some early yeah. early risers already already thinking about heading north or or moving up out of uh, their, maybe their terrestrial winter homes.
0: Right. So you got lots of terrestrial creatures as well as uh, aerial creatures that are uh, thinking about migrating to breeding sites. Right. And of course, those breeding sites are going to vary from species to species and how far they go Mm -hmm. is going to vary a lot. Some, it's just a few hundred yards, maybe less to uh,
1: thousands of miles. Yeah. Yeah. So quite the range. Quite the range and some some latitudinal, some altitudinal, um some some transverse east-west migration, all kinds of migrations, movements. Yeah, you'll have
0: to tell me a little bit about the east do you, do you some, have some examples of east Oh, s-
1: some some shorebirds, old world shorebirds that migrate east-west. Okay. And where they'll spend the winters in Australia. Okay. And then back to Asia. So is it more of a
0: going from avoiding the the dry or the wets is it a temperature where they're going for more yeah uh, warmer or going for more
1: rain or going for that's a great yeah. question yeah no I know that some of it is, is it, of course all of that all that driving food um, a lot of those shorebirds looking for available mud flats in in Australasia. So my mm-hmm. guess is yeah more moderate climate milder, more food available. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I'm not sure how that correlates with the wet dry. I have so, to do more research there. So,
0: yeah, uh, we're going to just give some examples of different migrations, breeding migrations. And in talking about their movements, some of the things that we want to cover are how do they navigate? Yeah. they They don't have this Rand McNally map that's folded up in their pocket, but they've got some kind of map in their head. Talk about Some of the ways that um, birds or other creatures find their way to their breeding site.
1: Yeah, and and it's taken taken some work to figure that out too. It's hard to get inside the head (laughs) of another creature, exactly. And you know, just kind of uh, one thing that that reminds me of is you know we're so highly visual creatures that oftentimes when we hear about another creature that has a more highly developed sense, like something like a pit viper. That's able to sense infrared radiation. Um, we we want to see, we, we what get they this see. Like, yeah, we we think that they see something there. And we 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 necessarily convince ourselves that they must see this infrared scan in their brain. That's not necessarily the case at all. Yeah, what we
0: call seeing is gonna be perceived in another way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like a bee or uh insect seeing ultraviolet, or even some birds that see ultraviolet. Yep. Yeah. What we have to do to understand that is to turn that ultraviolet light <laughs> into some kind of visible light. Yeah. And then we see it as visible, <laughs> but that's no fair, you know? Yeah, that's But good. anyway, what are some of the ways that scientists have ascertained how these birds or other creatures have found their way? I'll, I'll go ahead and kick it off with yeah. something. There are a lot of examples of uh, birds, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing some of that. But I remember when I was taking herpetology at the University of Idaho, and we were talking about some breeding orientation of uh, one of the newts. I think it was, oh man, it it was one of the Tarika species. Tarika is the genus. It might've been the red-bellied newt. Are they West uh, West Coast? Yeah, it's West Coast. Usually the brown, dark brown to light brown dorsum or top, and then a yellow or orange belly. I was quite fascinated because these researchers were trying to figure out how these newts made it back to their home stream. And they decided, well, are they smelling their way home? Are they seeing their way home using stellar navigation, looking at the stars and then picking a particular compass direction based on stars or magnetic field? What was it? So I wouldn't have liked this kind of research because they would either blind the salamander, say, okay of the test cases, how many blind salamanders made it back. Yeah. And it turned out when they blinded the salamanders, a lot of them made it back. Yeah. To, and this is going over several ridges. Uh, okay. Hill and yeah, Dale. I was
1: wondering what kind of distance yeah, we're talking I mean, talking quite,
0: about. quite a distance, um, several miles. All right. Nine miles is a long way for a newt. And they were displaced that far going over ridge and valley, ridge and valley to their natal stream. And the ones that were had their eyes put out, like Samson, made it back to their home stream. But when they- And they said,
1: don't go the same way we went. Yeah. If you want an offspring, <laughs> don't go yeah. over there.
0: Yeah. So they um they also <laughs> severed some uh, olfactory nerves. So that's the nerves that go from the nasal cavity to their brain. So they severed those nerves and it found out that those test cases- did not make it back to their yeah. their natal stream. So they concluded, always provisionally, but concluded that they smelled kind of like salmon. Right. They, no, very they, similar. They, they smelled their way back to their natal stream. So they, they got lost, the ones that had their olfactory nerves severed. Yeah. But the ones that made it back, they found out that when they looked, they had regrown their olfactory <laughs> nerves and wow. reconnected them. Wow. So- it's amazing.
1: Um, yeah. Now, are they just going straight overland? They're just trying to go. They're going. Straight they're going over A land. to B over, like yeah, the crow go, flies over Hill and Dale. Wow. So they're not sticking to a, a watershed. No, it's not like a stay, salmon. They salmon
0: are going up this watershed from the ocean up these rivers and then right. streams and then going to the second, third order stream where right. they were where they hatch.
1: So these uh, these salamanders are smelling smelling their in way terrestrial and aquatic. Does their all factory sense work in their stream itself? Apparently, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So they're they're in and out of the water and yeah, able to get enough Yeah, cuz they have to enough... go
0: through different streams on their way back. Right. Cuz they're going up a ridge and over yeah. uh, down into a valley. And these guys are just a few inches long and yeah. they're just clambering over That's a long haul. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. That that's really similar to my first example, which was the salmon. Okay, yeah, on uh, a, a pretty classic study uh, with salmon, and I use this I use this as kind of a an example for my students to think about how to craft a good hypothesis. Really spend a lot of time on what makes a good hypothesis. How can we craft one that's explanatory and testable? And uh, the, the example from this article is that we've known that salmon return to their natal stream for eons. Uh, right. we've, we've tagged them and, and then we see them back at the spot. Uh, and there's a lot of field techs in the summertime that are observing salmon at the weir and noting uh, if there's any tag uh, present. And, and so we've known for a really long time that salmon will make their way back from the ocean to their natal stream, their spawning ground. Um, and sometimes that's hundreds of miles interior. Mm-hmm. And uh, up one tributary and then the next and smaller and smaller back finally to the, the place where they first got their start. But it wasn't known forever, of course, how they did that. And so this is a little bit better stewardship example with the salmon. Uh, the, both hypotheses were tested, j- just as Gordon mentioned. Uh, maybe they do it by sight, maybe they do it by smell. And so to test the sight hypothesis... Uh, they put little black plastic flaps over the eyes of these salmon. That's better than putting They're their eyes out. Better than putting out. their eyes out. Yeah, <laughs> and these salmon made it back fine. They they could make it back with sunglasses. Uh, just dandy. Um, and then for the second hypothesis, uh, so the sight hypothesis was disproven. Most of the fish made it back even when they were blinders. Now, of course, there's going to be the aberrant salmon that just doesn't make it back at all. Just and because he might... they got eaten by a grizzly bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that Or, or he, he happened to just get off course and maybe started, uh, maybe started a new breeding population somewhere else. Um, but the second hypothesis, do they make it back by smell? A uh, little benzocaine ointment to numb the olfactory sense. Um, And these these salmon majority, the vast majority of the salmon did not make it back. And so they're able to sense, you know, olfactory types of molecules, odorants, Mm -hmm. odorant molecules in the water to the small concentration of parts per million or even parts per billion and use that as the navigational tool to find their way home. Yeah. I remember, I, I think it was a Moody Science film. Did you see that
0: where they were actually hooking salmon up to some kind of, um, well, it's not an EKG, but it was something that looked at the nerve activity and graphed the nerve activity kind of like a seismograph wow. or, or a, yeah, like an EKG or something like that. But it was hooked to the olfactory. Wow. No, that's incredible. Yeah, it's really neat. That is. And when they put water from a non-stream on, like they had the fish just, you know, up out of that. Well, they had water flowing over, so it didn't, you know, it wasn't suffocating or anything like that. And when they, they put the water from the natal stream on the olfactory organ, like uh, put that water there, the activity of the nerve just wow. um, just went wild. Yeah, there were
1: a couple of guys at the U of I University of Idaho doing that kind of work. Um, Joe Cloud, I think was his name. He's a molecular mm-hmm. biologist. He was doing some of that work in the he, lab. He was my
0: uh, professor. Okay. Uh, for Intro to biology.
1: He was my molecular biology professor okay. in grad school. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he he was he was tough. He was a yeah. good teacher. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah, er, I think Ernie Brandon maybe did a little bit of that work too. Yeah, uh, on
0: salmon. So yeah, the, and then when they put water from a non um, Uh, Natal stream. Yeah. Uh, Then there was very, it was just basal activity. Yeah. Just just background nerve uh, activity. Yeah. But then when they put that water on from the natal stream, just, whoo, that is, went wild. That's interesting. And they drew a very uh, erratic uh, wave. I don't, I don't know what you call that um, graph. Yeah. But it was, it was impressive to show graphically, literally Mm -hmm. graphically. Yeah. Um uh, that they really responded to that uh, the the right odorant molecules in the stream, the natal stream water that was the stimulus. so that when they come up to a branch in the uh, you know tr- two tributaries flowing or river in their tributary, yeah. uh, they know
1: which way to go, right? You got to fork in the road. you gotta smell in the road and take, take, smell <laughs> smell twice, smell <laughs> turn once, <laughs> Yep. smell <laughs> the stream, yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, you <clears> know, um. Uh, The young salmon, the fry have kind of a different, uh, you know, the water is pushing them to sea, so they don't have to necessarily smell their way there. But one thing they definitely do need is they do need, they do need current. Um, And so, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the challenge of, of how to, how to balance all these things as good stewards. You know, we, we want good sources of energy. Uh, we need hydroelectric power, uh, but we sure would love to see these salmon continue uh, and, mm-hmm. and to rebound as well. Uh, one of the one of the negative consequences of, of a dam is is the slack water, uh, and the juvenile fish uh, get lost. Mm-hmm. If there's no current, they don't know where to go, and they often okay. just stay in the slack water and never go further downstream. Uh, and and not uh, they don't or, oh, make it fried, to the ocean to for the, the ocean. first time? Yeah, about seventy five percent of steelhead don't even uh, make it to the ocean in year wow. one. Yeah. Wow. So, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. A lot of things that we need to know about their biology, just to make sure that we're good stewards. That's
1: right. What else you got for us, Gordon? Oh,
0: yeah. The um, you know, studying bird migration. It was kind of neat to to look at how uh different birds when it's called migratory restlessness.
1: Yeah, Zugunruhe.
0: Yeah, they would figure out which way the birds would want to migrate um by putting them in a sort of a blotting paper funnel and then their bird feet would be at the bottom and they'd get all inky black cuz they'd be standing in ink and then when they would get restless they would flutter up the funnel um and of course the funnel would be 360 and um they would flutter up in the direction that they were supposed to go. So you could see uh, that they were oriented in a certain way. Now, it was a screen-topped area, so they couldn't get out, but you could definitely see what compass direction they were wanting to migrate in.
1: Yeah. So evidence of some kind of internal Internal directionality.
0: And so in order to figure out what it was that was giving them the right direction, if it was on a cloudy, uh sometimes they would migrate at night. So if it was a cloudy night, they um it sometimes was a combination of different uh factors. Mm-hmm. But uh cloudy night, it was usually a little bit more confused if they were using stellar navigation. Right. Which means they were actually looking at the pattern of the stars. And they could test this by putting these um these. Experimental funnels uh, in a planetarium, and then they could just rotate the whole sky.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. It, yeah,
0: I love it. And so when they rotate, you know, ninety degrees, and so all the constellations were off ninety degrees, and they would jump in a different direction. So they could tell it was stellar navigation. Uh, they could also figure out if it was a magnetic compass uh, because the bird would be oriented in a certain angle. Uh, Relative to the Earth's um, magnetic field, and if they would, if they put like on pigeons, if they put a some something magnetic uh, on their head, it would throw off, it would confuse their magnetic sense. Yeah, and then they couldn't they couldn't navigate properly. So that's um, interesting. And sea turtles seem to be using magnetic sense. Okay, so they are basically steering a compass direction. Relative to um, magnetic north, and then they would move to whatever island was their natal island.
1: right so yeah, and the stimulus the, the stimulus to start migrating is is different than the stimulus to navigate correctly, right because they have to right. they have to know to, <clears throat> they have to start getting restless yeah, maybe exactly. and, and that uh, that is probably most commonly been attributed to increasing daylight yeah photo, photo period. period. Yep. Yeah, lots of creatures just waiting for some threshold, some in, in some yeah. threshold that um and, is yeah. is an is enough of a difference that it it triggers something some type Sometimes
0: of, the physiology of these triggers are pretty you know, it can get pretty complicated. And the yeah. bird bird doesn't know all the biochemistry or the physiology, but they just respond to it. Yep. And uh it's and if and then the experimenters can mess with the day lengths artificially and throw off their migration time.
1: Yeah. No, it's yeah. like, it's like students in the springtime in the classroom, right? Yep. <laughs> A little fidgety, yep. not, not paying as much attention. And no, that's, that's, uh that's interesting. Uh, how about the the world of reptiles? Are there, uh, well, you mentioned sea turtles. Um, yeah. Do, do terrestrial turtles do? Uh, well, that's the thing. Um, when I, I
0: didn't do breeding Orientation so much in my box turtles. Yeah, I did. I didn't know what was giving them their compass direction. Nor I had a clue that they were headed toward their. Um, I had a hunch that they were headed toward their natal site. That seems to be a pattern in a lot of different vertebrates. Yeah. Um, and what was interesting is these turtles would have a very limited home range in the woods. And then when uh, the females were gravid, that means loaded with eggs, they would, uh, and it was the right time of year, usually between mid-June, mid-July, they would head in a certain direction out of the woods. And the reason I thought that they were headed toward natal site is that sometimes they would pass through perfectly good nesting area where other turtles were nesting and just keep going. Mm. And they would go, you know, a quarter or a half mile farther and nest in another area. So I was thinking, well, why, why did it pass by this perfectly good area? Right. So I just felt like there was an instinct leading them to, um, where they were hatched. But there was no way for I, for, for me to prove it because I was dealing with adult turtles. I had no idea what their past was, where they hatched from. And there's been very little uh, done on that. Hmm. Um, that would be a long, most master's thesis or PhDs are, uh, two, three, four years. Right. And you need like a decade or two yeah, just to get, um, well, like on box turtles, you need to le- uh, wait at least eight years or so before they're sexually mature. So you have to be tracking these hatchlings, which are notoriously difficult to find. Yeah. Uh, in the leaf litter. Oh, I bet. So, um, you know, I, I worked, uh, for three seasons in, um, box turtle land. Okay. Lots of turtles per hectare. And there was only, I never saw a neonate. Wow. Ever. Wow. I saw one young juvenile once, once or twice. Uh, so they're just... They're just hard to find. Yeah, that's, They're so often you, under the leaf litter. Even trying to and figure so, out mortality rates. <clears throat> yeah. So you basically have to, when they hatch, you have to like tag this little guy. Yep. A pit tag or something like that. Because right. transmitter would be almost too big for a little turtle the size of a quarter. Right. Um, to put on them. Pit tags are, uh, I forget what pit stands for, personal identification tag or something like that. They, um, you can't, um, so I've never used pit tags, so I don't know the details there, but uh, it would just be a lot of work just to figure out if they're going back to their natal site. Right. But um, what was neat about um, that is that they would always orient towards open areas. They seem to navigate towards, um, they would usually spend most of their, uh, their time in the woods but then when they nested, they seemed to go to open areas, either, um, light gaps where a tree had fallen or a meadow mm. or a backyard or some place that was out in the open. Mm. And, uh, they just, uh, again, I don't know if they're, it's interesting because they find these open areas in the dark of the night. So it's not like they're looking for a lighter patch because they're doing it at night. Yeah. But they always seem to nest in uh, open areas.
1: Yeah. Interesting to be able to see as the box turtle sees. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's a, there's all sorts, when you study something, there's always other questions that are generated by, say, wow, I wonder, you know, when I was looking at their um, uh, migration outside their normal home range, it turned out that their, their home range was so much larger because what I would do in calculating their, uh, I called it activity range, which Mm -hmm. was their normal home range plus, plus the excursion zone where they would go to the nest site and back. And I would draw this generous, um, the computer would draw a generous ellipse around all of the data points where I found the turtle. Gotcha. and usually, they, their their um, home range was quite small, just a few hectares. And it would um, the average uh, size of their activity range, which included their excursion, uh, was uh, five times bigger than their normal home range. And so, uh, this is just a side point on navigation to uh, breeding. Yeah, is is that. In a box turtle that's terrestrial, a excursion to a nest site and back, if they are living in an area that is populated with people, um, say s- suburban or even residential with lots of wooded areas, um, that excursion to the nest site is going to bring them th- across numerous or several roads. Right, and so. Um, it's interesting. This is something that needs to be tested. Is that my hypothesis, which we never tested because I was done with my research? Is um, I was I was researching something else, but this question popped up. Would if road kills of box turtles were e- uh, evaluated between June cent- mid June to mid July? would most of the roadkill turtles be females with eggs? Mm. And my my guess is that it would not be a random sample of the population. It would be mostly, my. this is my hypothesis, yeah. most of those roadkills would be females mm. loaded with eggs. Wow. But that needs to be tested. Yeah. Because- Really, when they're not gravid, they just hang out in their own home range, and they never really are, um, you know, they don't have an urge to head across lots of roads. Occasionally, you'll see males crossing roads and stuff. Males seem to be out and about more,
1: but- So you were, and you were monitoring their movements mostly during the breeding season? Or did you want, okay. Uh,
0: uh, Yeah, breeding season, a little before, a little after. Um, and through the breeding season. Hmm. And I was only tracking females, so I don't, I don't know about the movements of the males. Interesting. But anyway, any other, um, super I, migrators in the, the bird world? Well, I,
1: I, what I'm just thinking of now <clears> is, is my work in Western North Carolina. We are studying primary oven birds, um, and this, this is kind of skirting along the edges of our topic for today. But um, we were monitoring oven birds and finding their nest sites. And uh, we banded the chicks so they, they'd lay eggs and they'd hatch. And we would band the chicks with little colored plastic bands so we could distinguish between them. Mm-hmm. And then, watch, uh, then we watched our interactions with, uh, with the adults and, and how far they would disperse um, from, the, from the nest site. Um, there for the first few weeks after, after hatching and after fledging. And I just am reminded that so many species really they're left to their, their own. Uh, Often the parents leave before them. Yeah. Uh, They, they eventually get to the point where they're not being fed by the parents anymore. And this is true in lots of bird species. Um, some bird species are feeding themselves. That's called incentivizing all, them. You better, yeah, absolutely, fly or die. <laughs> right. Watch what mom and dad are doing, and don't right. wait too long to do the same thing. Um, and a lot, a lot of the the birds that the birds that wait, especially aquatic birds, um, I'm thinking of loons. We are studying on the on up in the North Slope of Alaska as well. If you wait too long, the the ice starts to form, and it's harder to get off of that water. Um, but just, i do you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm kind of racking my brain for bird examples here, but do you know of species where their, uh, where their migration does actually involve, uh, parents coming alongside or a family unit migration, or is it, is it mostly, um, mostly adults leaving first, followed by young boy, do you know of any family trying to think of any family? I mean, I don't know
0: that, um, Anatod your ducks, geese, uh are they, they they seem to be in formation. Are they all adults or are they got some youngsters with
1: them? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Not sure. Yeah. Not sure about that.
0: Yeah. Lots to know. Lots to know. I'm trying to think of any other interesting breeding. I know uh, that or or yeah. Breeding orientation. Yeah. Uh, olfactory, there's stellar. That means uh, by by the um, stars, and then there's solar compasses as well a sun compass. So, uh, birds that fly during the day and they are actually looking at the position of the sun relative to uh, their flight. Of course, the sun's moving and so are the stars. So, they have to make adjustments um, dear, as they're flying. They have to sort of know what time of day it is um, or night. To make those adjustments in their trajectory, um, you know what's going on in the the brain of the
1: bird. Uh, Phenomenal, yeah, wow. No, that's super interesting. And in marine, the marine environment, we've talked a little bit about salmon, but I'm just thinking of those creatures that have more of a more of a regular, even even a daily migration. You get some some creatures in the water column; um, mm-hmm. they're going to be coming up to feed coming up to feed at night and, mm-hmm. and and true it's not maybe not as long or an ar- as arduous a journey right. as going to the breeding grounds but migrating to the feeding grounds on a daily basis, for lots of creatures, you know, right. we often see the geese flying. We see them in the evening; they're going back to their uh, their place where they like to roost together for the night. Right. And then in the morning, and in, in the during the daytime, they're they're making short jaunts to to their feeding grounds. Yeah, when we were in Sri Lanka, we saw the the big fruit bats mm.
0: that would roost in this big, huge tree, um, and then um, they would fly to wherever um, to eat fruit in some farmer's field. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they knew where to go, uh, in, in their flight. Um, so there's lots of different, like you said, there's lots of different migration patterns, whether it's breeding, whether it's feeding, um, fun stuff. Well, as you can see, we don't know everything there is to know. (laughs) There's a lot. So there's There's a uh, lot out there. Yeah. You can, uh, um when we start uh talking about something feel free to go and uh, do some research and figure out uh, take your favorite animal um whatever it is and see if there's anything that's known about the breeding or any other migration pattern and uh see if anybody has uh looked into it and um figured out what yeah. is um what cues they're using to find their way.
1: And it's a great opportunity to really, to, to just enjoy the, the science process too. It it takes a lot of work uh, to try to do some of these experiments we've been describing. You can have
0: a very, very simple question. Yeah. Like, why does that, you know, why do they fly that way? Yeah. But the answer or figuring out
1: the answer can be quite a challenge for very smart people. Yep. And it's an opportunity to, uh, I, one of the other things, just, uh, an aside here, all the different inventions that biologists have come up with to be able to conduct their experiments. There's oh, a, yeah. there's kind of a fun engineering aspect too. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, folks with a physicist or an engineering brain, you know, uh, that's a great opportunity to still do really good, important biology work, Right. um, in, in experimental design. Exactly.
0: When I, I, uh, when I was doing my radio telemetry of the box turtles, I was so glad that there was, uh, somebody that figured out how to do these nice little radio transmitters. And, uh, all I had to do is figure out how to, uh, secure them yeah. on the turtle shell, which I would use, um, you know, epoxy and, um, tune into their channel, uh, and find their, find their location. Well, fun stuff. I think
1: we're we've run out. Yeah, Let's, we're out. We're out, buddy. All right.
0: <laughs> we'll see <laughs> you be next continued. time.
1: All right, Gordon. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoScience.com. That's n-o-e-o Science.com.